You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. In our continuing series in conversation with Lee Strobel's critique of Christian Universalism, we welcome back to the Grace Saves All podcast, Tony Goldsby-Smith. Tony's at the center of a very exciting movement in Australia called Gospel Conversations. And I highly recommend the Gospel Conversations podcast and their website, gospelconversations.com. His training and expertise is originally in the area of literature, particularly poetry or how words work. His first degree was an honors degree in literature, where his thesis focused on how poems are born and grow. Particularly, his thesis examined the 1971 discovery of T.S. Eliot's original manuscripts of The Wasteland, which revealed how the famous poem grew. And so one could say that Tony's expertise and interest is in how literary texts emerge over time. Following his honors degree in literature, Tony completed a postgraduate degree in education, and Tony went on to teach literature for 12 years. He views the current debate over Christian universalism, or apocatastasis in the Greek, as partly an educational issue relating to how people's minds change and grow. Following his teaching career came a 30-year consulting career, which resulted in applying transformational thinking to big systems of governance and strategy. This proved to be like a modern Joseph in Egypt experience for Tony, and it further informed his interest in widening the lens of our thinking in the realm of salvation to include the vast notion of cosmic redemption, how it is that the Lordship of Christ will ultimately lead to the reformation of all the systems of the universe. Tony's PhD was in the sociology of thought, how paradigms shackle thinking and entrap people. This sharpened Tony's thinking and how it is that people get entrapped in ways of seeing things and worldviews that obscure perceptions and limit their effectiveness. His PhD focused on how the scientific method, or Cartesian reductionism, has entrapped modern business and organizations and management theory. Tony is now the chairman and part owner of a big data company focusing on how advanced analytics and big data can optimize decision-making. All of this focus on decision-making over the last 30 years has given Tony an interesting vantage point from which to view the decision-making which is at the heart of the current debates around hell, given how the destiny of people is often framed around spiritual decision-making. I am pleased to get Tony's big-picture take on the way someone like Lee Strobel defends traditional evangelical understandings and critiques Christian universalism. Welcome back, Tony Goldsby-Smith, to the Grace Saves All podcast. Thank you. Thank you, David. Well, that was a long introduction, but I think it was warranted because it sets the framework for the big picture issues you are wanting to focus on as you considered Lee Strobel's critique of Christian universalism. Yes, I mean, uh, the reason it's relevant for people to understand where I'm coming from is that the approach that I, uh, when you asked me about what my critique or response to Lee's book was, um, I'm not a professional theologian and I'm not an academic, although I have academic posts. Um, I, I was the visiting chair of design at Carnegie Mellon University, the Nuremberg Chair of Design in 1995. I'm, I'm a fellow of the Batten Institute at the University of Virginia. So I hover around the edges of the academy, but it's not my life. Uh, so what I, what I bring is what 
is called in the leadership world uh, cross-disciplinary thinking. And I think um, we need cross-disciplinary, you know, part of my frustration with the church is this, compared to some of the large corporates I've worked with, the church is um, ironically and sadly more conservative. Um, um, whereas, um, and I think the, uh, what what is prized in, in modern management theory, particularly leadership, is what's called cross-disciplinary thinking. People who can mix perspectives, not hundreds of perspectives, probably three, two or three or four big ones. Mm -hmm. uh, in cognitive science, it's called associative fluency. And, and that is what creates new insights and fresh ways of looking at things. And I think the church, um, at its best at the moment, the best thinkers are cross-disciplinary thinkers. I mean, the, you've interviewed David Bentley Hart, and David's obviously much more academic than I am, but David is a cross-disciplinary thinker. It's hard to pin him, pin him down. He seems to come from everywhere. And mm -hmm. that's a good well, uh, how would you evaluate then um, the style that Strobel brings to his critique of Christian universalism? Well, look, to be blunt, I found it irritating. I mean... <laughs> I'm sorry to say that, but it's very, he's a journalist, right? It's it, To understand, I suppose, how somebody thinks, you need to dig a bit into their background. And I think Lee's got two backgrounds that in themselves are, are neither good nor bad, but they're, they're very noticeable to me. Um, and the first thing is he was a journalist. I've worked a lot uh, with some of the largest media companies, um, certainly in, our, in Australia, um, and so I know how they write and how they think. It's a kind of a superficial style, to be honest with you. He uh, headlines, you know, journalists write a lot um, about stuff they don't know uh, uh, deeply about. So they get very good at being fluent, but bad at digging deep. You know, when journalists have interviewed me about what I do, I mean, they've got a deadline, they've got to get a story. So what this comes out in the book is um, what I call argument by interview. You know, you pick someone who you call "quote unquote" an expert, and you interview them, and and you know he 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 obviously admires these people and he humanizes them. But the problem with that is that the argument's not actually being developed. It's it's just one side of the story, which um, and it, it's it's very fluency makes it seem you know frankly more credible than it ought to ought to be. I mean, if I was marking it as an essay uh, from a postgraduate student, I'd give it a low mark. Uh, nothing wrong with being a journalist. We actually need them. But I'm saying there is, you just got to take that as a, as a style with its limitations. The other thing that's possibly, I think, just as significant is that he's also trained in law. The very fact he calls his books a case for, uh, this one's a case for heaven, but I mean, I think his first book was called A Case for Christ and, and so on. That immediately betrays the legal legal mindset. Now, the legal mindset, obviously, law is a great profession, but it's also got great weaknesses, and it's very adversarial. And, uh, you know, if you're the lawyer for the defence, you just pick your witnesses, which is exactly what he's done here. He's not providing a balanced judicial view. Uh, probably goes deeper than that in that uh, later on we talk, my critique of the Christian gospel is it's been... In, the, in modern times, since Luther, who, by the way, was trained heavily in law, a legalistic or forensic mindset has come to skew the gospel away from grace. That's my view very strongly. And um, in the diocese, I live in Sydney, which is the dominant evangelical tradition in Sydney is um, the, are the Anglicans. And they're pretty, Sydney Anglicans are well known for being very, very conservative. But 
the people who are very dominant in the laity who run it are, are generally top lawyers from Sydney. Uh, and, uh, you know, that that's that's limited. It'd be different if literary guys did, uh, ran it, for instance. Well, whenever Lee Strobel is presenting his arguments in kind of the standard way that evangelicals go about it, um, what you notice is that there are just some assumptions, just things that are assumed, a certain a certain worldview that is kind of uncritically just thought to exist, just to be self-evident. And I was wondering if you could start there. Yeah, well, what you talked about in your opening was uh, my interest in what what um, a mentor of mine called entrapment. Uh, you know that we humans tend to trap ourselves in paradigms, and um, there are big scale and small scale entrapments. So partly, growth and development in any field is breaking out of entrapments and finding new ways to see things. Um, I think that the, um, and, and I'm really sympathetic to this because I, I've been a Christian for over 60 years. So I've been, <laughs> if you've been a Christian that long you, you, and you're inquisitive like me, you tend to have, have tasted lots of different brands of Christianity. And, 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 mm-hmm. and so I know what it's like to be in their shoes, which is that because this doctrine of hell is for a bizarre reason so cemented as one of the core doctrines um, of the church, you just assume it and then you read everything into it. But what that does is it stops you reading the text. And there's one sentence in the book, um, it's actually not, it's in the chapter, I think, prior to the one that, that, you, that uh, you've talked to the other people about, it's called The Logic of Hell. It's, it's absolutely symptomatic of what I'm talking about, which is a very tendentious, very bad literary reading, but it is very, very revealing. And the sentence is this, uh, he says, Jesus spoke a lot about judgment and hell, and he used the metaphor of Gehenna to do it, quote, unquote. That's it, literally. Now, that's just wrong. But it's how everybody thinks. What he's done is he's retrospectively imported back into the text the conceptual framework of hell and judgment. And he says that's what Jesus spoke about. I recently wrote a podcast that the word H-E-L-L is really top candidate for the worst translation in the Bible. Yeah, H-E-L-L does not exist in the Bible, and Jesus did not talk about it. If he was a precise, you know, if I was his his teacher marking this in an essay, it'd get a big cross. Jesus did not speak about judgment and hell. Jesus spoke about Gehenna. Now, what he meant by that, clearly he's using it metaphorically to mean, if he'd have said Jesus spoke a lot about Gehenna, and he used that as a metaphor for judgment and hell, that would be closer to the truth. Mm-hmm. I would prefer to say Jesus spoke a lot about Gehenna or the Valley of Hinnom, and it's clearly metaphorical. And what it means is questionable. If you if you begin there, everything changes. Uh, you know, frankly, I re- I'm thinking of starting a movement and perhaps you could champion it for me. All we need to do is just ban the train. I mean, the best one, N.T. Wright's done it. He's dropped hell and it's Gehenna. Just imagine if for... Three four hundred years, the word hell was not in the New Testament, but either Hades or Gehenna. We wouldn't be having mm-hmm. this conversation today. Yeah, I think that uh, my experiences growing up in the Bible Belt in America is that 
I didn't grow up going to church, but you know, everybody knows Christianity is about heaven and hell. And God is a kind of a big Santa Claus, much more severe. And he's got a list and you don't find out that which list you're on until you die. But some people go to heaven and other people go to hell. And if you don't want to go to, if you don't want to go to hell, you better accept Jesus as your savior. And you better do it sufficiently enough that you get on the right list, which you don't find out until when you die, really. Um, yeah, the list of the favorites. The list of the favorites. <laughs> and, and look, the, 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 there's more There's more to it than this. Uh, I mean, if, if people want to, I gave a talk on this in Gospel Conversations, and I've got a sub-channel there called Breakfast with Jesus, and I gave a talk on it. Do, do you know when the word hell came into the English language out of interest, David? Well, I mean, Middle Ages. Yeah, it, it was literally we... If you look at the Oxford English Dictionary, it'll tell you it was the 8th and 9th century. This is the first recording we have of it in what's called the Vespasian Psalter. Now, you and I would know, anyone would know straight away that it, it's therefore in the Psalms because the only the only um, part of the Bible that got into Anglo-Saxon in the Middle Ages was the Psalms. The rest remained in Latin. Um, and you, you and I both know that whenever the afterlife is mentioned in the Jewish mind, it's Sheol. Well, that's what the word they use for hell. So it's very, very bad. But the question is, well, where did this word come from? And once it got in there, it, it, it sort of spread like, an, like a virus such that when Tyndale and others, you know, came to Gehenna, they used hell. Um, well, it's, it's pretty clearly, according to the etymology, um, imported from Northern Europe, you know, just think the kind of dark, cloudy, demonic, Danish <laughs> gods mm -hmm. and, 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 uh, and was likely the god of the underworld. And so it's just it, it, the point about words and the way they work in poetry is that some words are like freight trains of meaning. They've just got this big undercurrent of connotations with it. So this word was a freight train that brought with it essentially a freight train of pagan concepts of the afterlife, dark, foreboding, and fears. That's where it came from. It's a shocking mistranslation. And the fact that they talk so loosely about it and then relegate the use of Gehenna. I mean, if, if you ask most Christians, well, where does the word Gehenna occur? They wouldn't know where to look because uh, they haven't read Jeremiah. But if you start to read Jeremiah, uh, in the context of Jeremiah and Kings, you begin to, you begin to perhaps... Uh, in, uh, find the metaphorical range Jesus was calling on. It certainly wasn't um, eternal conscious torment. Well, this gets into the question of how you read a text and how you get meanings from a text. And this gets into your literary background and how you deal with paradoxes and, and that, that type of thing in, uh, in text. And you run into this in, in, the, in the New Testament, in the judgment language. Could you talk about Talk about that a little bit. Yes, I think, um, you know, my second critique of, I think, the assumptions behind uh, Lee's book is that the Bible's got clear answers and we'll find the answers in the Bible. That's actually quite dishonest, I think. The Bible does not have got clear answers and the more you read it, the more difficult it gets to the extent it can challenge your faith. I mean, you know, we, we, we're not going to go into other things like, you know, did God really command what looks like genocide? 
through his prophets. Um, and in the book of Joshua, that's that's just an example. It's difficult. It's difficult. And then within the Bible, there's it's it's very easy to find apparent contradictions, and some of them are very fruitful uh, and interesting. Uh, some of them harder to work out. Uh, so the assumption that the Bible that this is a kind of the epistemological assumption the Bible is really clear and cut and dried, and we've just got to find the answers forensically. That's the legal mindset that thinks that the answer is in precision. It's not. Where I'm going to go with with this is well, if I am, if I still believe the Bible is inspired by God, which I do, probably in a less literal way than 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 some people would, but nonetheless, it's I still believe it's inspired by God, but it appears to be full of contradictions. What do I do with this? Now the answer is my goal for interpretation has to change, and I'll get to that later. But I want to introduce it. The goal has to become, the, the big word has to become, therefore, what's coherent. I don't look for certainty. I look for coherence. Because somehow it's like a jigsaw puzzle. I've got to fit these bits together. Um, mm-hmm. And so, for instance, when David Bentley Hart says the reason he thinks Gregory of Nyssa was a superior theologian to Augustine is because Gregory was conceptually more agile and could create a more coherent theology out of the contradictions than Augustine ever could. So the contradictions persist in Augustine's work and, and it's, a, you know, it's a strange mixture of good stuff and bad stuff that he just can't get together. So with that, when I look at some of their handling of texts and the way they oversimplify texts, the, the one that always... in it just intrigues me the most is Matthew 25, which is the sheep and goats passage, which, of course, um, Lee and his interlocutor, um, Paul Copan, is it Copan or Copan? Copan. Copan, uh, talk about. Yeah, that's really a proof text for hell for a lot of people. Now, what he actually said is this, right? And I'll read out word for word what he said. This is another example of, of importing uh, meaning that's simply not there. Consider his teaching about sheep and goats in Matthew 25, where Jesus says in verse 46 that the unredeemed will go the way to eternal punishment. Jesus not only says in verse 41 that the fire for the unredeemed will be eternal, but he emphasizes that the punishment itself will be eternal, end of quote. Now, he uses a word there. That's an evangelical word that is not in the text. It's not implied in the text. And the word is the redeemed. So what people do is import back into the sheep and goats, those who believe in Jesus and those who don't. The word redeemed is not there. The word that's there is the righteous. And people just look at the very end of it, the postscript. It's a long paragraph. The paragraph is not about two ways to live. The paragraph is a, it seems to be about, if you want to take it seriously, salvation by works. Jesus rewards the righteous and he condemns the unrighteous. So I've listened to the contortions evangelicals get into because they start at the end, two ways to live, go to heaven, go to hell. Those who believe in Jesus go to heaven, those who don't go to hell. Then they read that back into the text. But the text is not about that. It's all about works. And straight away they've hit enormous problems with their reformed theology. So the text is not talking about what they're talking about, clearly. And the fact that he imports the word redeemed and unredeemed into this is just a complete giveaway. Big cross, you know, if I'm marking the essay, read the text. 
I could say a lot more about it. The point about the text, if you want to read it, the most thrilling thing, about, what is the theme of that? It's not about judgment. The theme, well, it's, it, it's, it isn't, it isn't. The main the astonishing theme is that the King of Kings aligns himself with the poor of humanity. When did you ever give me a cup of water? I, I never gave you a cup of water. I've never seen you before. You're God. If you gave it to one of these, the least you gave it to me. That's the theme. I've never heard people talk about that, but it's pretty obvious. So that's an example of where this this kind of um, distortion occurs by retrofitting evangelical gospel back onto a text that's simply not. And so the text no longer speaks to us. So that's that one. And, um, the the other one that you wanted to talk about was from Daniel. <laughs> this was it's just... Uh, this is the famous Daniel, you know, resurrection passage of Daniel 12. And, and I was just, uh, to be honest with you, a bit jaw-dropping on this one because of the double standards of Lee. And I think I think it's Paul who, who talks about this one. What he says is about the Daniel passage, which is, let me just read it out. It's the famous, it's, it's famous because it, it's, the, it's the most explicit or, you know, statement of resurrection in, in, in the Old Testament. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So what his comment is, is uh, there is no way to escape the obvious grammatical contrast between the unending well-being of the righteous and the unending shame of the wicked. To limit the suffering of the wicked without limiting the bliss of the righteous is grammatically impossible. So what he's correctly, I think, pointed out, and it's a difficult passage, I'm not quite sure what, how to interpret it, but nonetheless, what he has pointed out is this grammatical parallelism that runs the argument. Good point. When they get to Romans 5, where the grammatical parallelism in Romans 5 is is actually far more profound, far more developed, which is, as in Adam all died, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Suddenly he drops grammatical parallelism and it's nowhere to be seen. You can't have your cake and eat it. If you want to argue for me grammatical parallelism in Daniel 12, argue it in Romans 5. So that's just an example of the way that I sort of saw this, I suppose, the, some of the complexities of Scripture, the only way out of them is to let the text talk and live in it and see where it takes you. And that's tough work, but they're not doing it. Well, then you have a concern about a wider problem, which is the limited view of the gospel that you that you see in a limited landscape in the way it's presented. Could you talk about that some? Yeah, well, all of those those points are, I suppose, reactive points. My my broader point is uh, a world viewpoint, um, which is that the real I think limitation uh, is not so much hell. But the, the, the understanding of the gospel into which they, they place hell. My, my passion is the gospel and discovering its horizons and broadening its horizons, which I think is an ongoing work, you, you know, just as a preliminary point to this. Um, the first, really, well, not the first big sermon, the first sermon for which I'm, anyone's martyred is Acts chapter 7. Stephen. His very long sermon to the to the Pharisees and the Jews, and it can be summarised like this: Your God is too small. There's a bigger God with a bigger project than you've ever conceived, and you're trying to box him in. And I think we're all guilty of that. 
you know, we're all wanting to turn God into a religious construct that's part of our our religious system, which is what they were doing. And he said, he's he's in the heavens, you can't do that. So I think the the gospel has got shrunken. Um, and the particular sentence that um, I will quote from Lee's book, which I think illustrates his understanding of what universalists think the gospel is, is and I think it's his understanding too, is that universalists emphasise, this is, this is the sentence, universalists emphasise God's overarching narrative of creation, the fall, and then Christ reconciling everything and everybody to himself. Now, actually, he's got it wrong. The best of the universalists do not take that approach. That approach that he's, he's just summarised there is a, is, a, is a sequential approach that I think particularly Douglas Campbell, who you've interviewed, has critiqued um, very astutely. And David Bentley Hart is the same. It's actually a time-bound, the you know, the history of salvation approach, which mm-hmm. puts God, Jesus as plan B, a, a reaction to sin. So what they do is, and this is a, the, a broad critique we make in gospel conversations, is that the Reformed gospel, and lots of the gospel, you know, I'm not just wanting to blame the Reformers, uh, which I call the sin-based gospel, it starts the gospel in the wrong place, Genesis 3. The gospel should begin in Genesis 1, not the Bible, the gospel. And if you start the gospel in Genesis 3, then the problem becomes sin. That's the big problem. That's the you know that's what that's what we're here to tell you the solution of. But straight away, it's boxed into a religious framework. So therefore, the gospel becomes a rescue mission view of the gospel. By the way, Bonhoeffer in his letters from prison was searing in his honesty in the limitations of this way of thinking. And I don't know if you've ever read any of those um, letters, but it's astonishing. So the rescue mission view of the gospel. I mean, we got it at church the other day, and I. Simple illustration. I mean, I love the, I love the minister and the people. They're trying hard, but you, you know, it's it's limited. So, so he had, he had a series where he kept using an analogy, and the analogy was this. You know, this is the analogy of the gospel. I'm going to the beach. I'm going for a swim. I get out into deep water. I get in. I get into trouble. I raise my arms for help. Uh, the lifesaver arrives and he rescues me by pulling me onto the rescue boat, and I'm grateful but bedraggled. Then I see there are others on the boat, same as me. We all got rescued. And this is the church and Christ is the lifesaver. So I just wrote him an email, which unfortunately he, I mean, he answered, he didn't get. I said, I think the story's a bit short term and narrow. Like there's a bigger question, which is what are we doing on the beach in the first place? He didn't pick that up, but that's the big question. <laughs> what are we doing on the beach? And, and the rescue mission view, which is, you know, I, I mean, I summarized the logic of it, different points do you want me to quickly go through them Uh, if you would like yeah yeah and this leads to some uh huge omissions from the gospel the the most um powerful one is as i go through it you'll see there is no soteriology of the resurrection the resurrection is some kind of exit from the tomb because god jesus was divine but there isn't an essence of how the operating system of redemption is resurrection and cross. It just becomes the cross. And uh, that's, you know, I mean, that's much critiqued. Um, and I don't know if you looked at the discussion between Douglas Campbell and Douglas Moo on their justification thing. Did you see that video? 
I haven't, but I, I, I heard you recommend that, and I want to look into that. Yeah, I mean, Douglas Moo's you know, a lovely man, but he was totally stumped when somebody raised this question to him you know, because, yeah, so where's, your, where's the resurrection fit into justification? He had to confess. He had to do more thinking about it. I mean, it's astonishing. It's astonishing. It should be central. It's central in the epistles quite clearly. But that's because the whole argument's got started in the wrong place. You start an argument in the wrong place, you'd know, David, you don't get the right place. Mm -hmm. So if we say sin is our big problem, sin's a big problem, point one. Point two, this inadvertently positions God as the examiner. He's like the audit chief and his dominant quality is holiness and life becomes passing an exam, passing some exam of holiness. And what this does is it gives an anthropology to the church, which has been most unfortunate, which is uh, as sinners. The first thing they want to say, as a matter of fact, almost the only thing they want to say about human beings is that they're sinners. So what this then does is the cross gets reduced to penal substitution, i.e. a forensic metaphor for the punishment for sin. And along the way, the incarnation gets shrunk because the incarnation is just a temporary uh, guise in order to allow God, Jesus, to die for our sins. So uh, it's, a, it's a very, everything gets shrunken. Now, the big prize out of it, the end of that is to be forgiven, and that means escaping punishment. So even the very word forgiveness is problematic because it's a kind of a negative word. You know, if I say you're forgiven, forgiven of what? Well, sit, we're, now we're back at sins. And if you think about it, if I say to you, you're forgiven, yeah, and what do I do then? I just get back to neutral, do I? And, and then what? And again, it's very easy just to start reading the Bible. I, I give people a quick test on forgiveness. I say, if I give you two words to describe your, your experience and your state with God as a Christian, and, and which word is top of mind, would you describe yourself as forgiven or would you describe yourself as righteous? Most people, they just go for forgiven. I said, okay, fine. That, that's, how, that's natural because it's kind of a, a lower quality word. In the book of Romans, how many times do you think Paul mentions the word forgiveness and how many times do you think he mentions the word righteous? Well, the answer is forgiveness is possibly one or two and righteous is, I forget last time I counted, let's say 67. So he didn't think that way. So that's the forgiveness thing. And now, now what happened by definition we're almost now into a, the two camps approach. Some escape, some don't. So humanity gets divided into winners and losers. And guess what? Heaven becomes the reward where I escape hell and hell is the home of the tormented. And in the meanwhile, while, I, while I'm on earth, I'm in the church, which is some kind of mini heaven and sanctification becomes de-sinning. So th that landscape is the landscape into which hell makes sense. You know, heaven and hell is almost like part of that landscape, uh, which in my view is a very limited view of the gospel. So this this logical system of the gospel that, that is presented, hell becomes like a piece in a jigsaw. And your point is not that the hell piece is wrong, it's rather that the whole jigsaw is wrong. Can you say some more about that? Yes, the whole jigsaw is wrong because of where it begins. And putting it very simply, that whole model that I've just been through begs the question of why. It's all about how, how we get saved and who gets saved. The question is why. I mean, if you think about going to heaven 
That's a very kind of static destination. So what do we do when we get there? I mean, what's the point of it anyway? And the whole vantage of the hell question is what's my destiny? Now, where, where, where do I get to? Now, I don't like Calvin in many ways, but what I do like about Calvin is that he did try to go to the why question. What, what's God's purpose? That's the more, far more important question. Now, the early church fathers, and in particular the ones that I love who happen to really believe in cosmic redemption, they went back to creation. That's where their thinking went. Before you go to the end, we said, let's say heaven and hell is the end. Mm-hmm. The end has no sense if I don't understand the beginning. And the beginning is not the beginning as in a time-based beginning. It's the beginning as in purpose. The, the conception of the whole thing is in the beginning. The conception of the whole thing is in the beginning. And, and we know as human beings, because we participate in the in the image of God. We know what it's like. We know how anything begins. How does music begin? How does uh, a different layout for my garden begin? How does my how do my relationships begin? How, how does the things I study begin? Some kind of stirring purpose intention is there to make things happen. And that's just a echo of God. So to, to, to have, I mean, the, the, if you don't do this work of going right back to the beginning and getting the big picture, you end up with what I call, you know, timetable eschatology. I mean, Maltman in his wonderful book, The Theology of Hope, just explains how the modern gospel is just very weak on eschatology, just timetables. It's time, you know, where do we go? When do we go? You know, it's almost like a queuing system, you know, who goes first, who goes second, who goes left, who goes right, you know. I mean, it's, it's awful. And it leaves your mind unreconstructed. It just lets the landscape of reality that you share with every other person in the street stay the same and just put Jesus into it, you know. Um, The church fathers didn't do that. They let the gospel recreate their mental landscape. And the way to do it, that they did it, was going back to the very, very beginning of creation and seeking what's God's purpose in bringing a finite created material world into existence in the first place? And then what's the role of humanity in that? Now, that was the huge questions that framed Gregory of Nyssa's magnificent book on the making of humanity. Um, And it's breathtaking. And furthermore, if you then say, see, you then start with creation to diagnose the life of Christ and the redemptive effort. And I can't, I, I cannot believe we talk about having blinkers on and paradigms i cannot believe david how i as a christian very literate in the bible missed all this missed all of it i mean what i missed was this incredibly important point the writers of the epistles all of them but let's just say john and paul in particular when they looked at the life they looked at this paradigm shattering event that had taken place the presence of God on the earth, the cross, and God dies, God dies, and then God rises. How They had to make sense of that. Now, what paradigm did they use to start to filter it? Did they use sacrificial Levitical systems in part, uh, yeah, arguably, Galatians? But I don't think it's the big one. The paradigm they used was creation. 
they looked at this life as through the, the lens of creation. That's why John begins his epistle. That which was from the beginning, which we have seen and heard and touched and our hands have, and, 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 and we, we have handled concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, made accessible to us, which was with the Father from the beginning. He's right back in Genesis 1. Paul in creation and in new creation, that's, those are the dominant metaphors he starts to use to unpack what God had done. And so viewing the gospel from the landscape of Genesis 1 and creation, now we're looking at creation and new creation. Now the resurrection starts to fit in as creation. And within that, uh, as the new creation, the prototype for the new creation. So within that that landscape, this is what happened to me, the what I'm talking about, David, intrigued my, me from when I was a young Christian. There were these verses in the Bible that I thought I'd read them and my head would shake. I'd say, what on earth? So I'm a literary guy. I said, if I had a blank sheet of paper, I would never have written that. I mean, when Paul is, you know, giving advice to the Corinthians, stop bickering with one another, for all things are yours. The past, the future, death. Life, all things are yours. You're Christ and Christ is God's. And then he moves on and says, hang on, hang on, hang on. What does he see? All things are ours? The future's ours? The past? I mean, where's he coming from? But in particular, then Colossians and Ephesians, particularly Ephesians 1 verse 10, utterly intrigued me. It's very important because it's about purpose, Ephesians 1 verse 10. The mystery of the universe has been made clear to us now God will integrate recapitulate all things in Christ and, and there were these what I'd call great visions of the end of all things being united and wrapped up in God that I knew were the high points of the gospel and I knew I didn't have the conceptual la uh, landscape to fit them into but they they attracted me attracted me more and more and more and then of course you start thinking this way hell just logically stops fitting in. I mean, if God is all and in all, he's got to be in hell as well. He's got to be, you know, if he's infinite. And, and where does this fit? And this powerful vision of God creating humanity in his image and then putting all things into him, that, that landscape, as it developed in my mind, hell became more and more of an anomaly. So it wasn't as if I, I mean, there are other problems with it too, but, but what I would call the visionary way of thinking which is in the gospels was what began to make me think this isn't working that's what frankly lee's book just doesn't have that landscape in it its landscape is unreconstructed i guess when i was first around christianity and they would talk about in the beginning god created and it was as if okay well god created so creation was done and god was thinking oh well everything looks good but then there's all these problems that start to develop and God has got to figure out what to do. And it's like God tries to do this thing, but then the people mess up. And so God has to do something else in it. And so God is just trying to make the best out of this situation that seems to have gotten out of control and trying to save as many people as possible and kind of gets increasingly upset and angered that the people just keep messing up and keep, you know, and keep failing. So sort of the anger keeps building and building through the Bible. And then you get to the New Testament and 
the sort of the solution is put forward in Jesus, and you can escape now the this astounding wrath of God through Jesus. But the ones that don't get that, you know, the wrath of God, which has built up because we've messed up creation so bad, and He's so furious with us, that's going to fall on everybody forever. And so, what you need to do is escape that. That was kind of how the maybe nobody put it to me exactly that way, but that seemed kind of the basic story. Yeah, yeah. yeah and then. Uh, to to read somebody like Gregory of Nyssa or Origen or somebody like that, and to say, no, that the purposes of God in creation were completely thought through from beginning to end before God brought the aeons or the ages into existence for the purposes of God. And that the ultimate purposes of God in creation would that is that humanity would become completely taken into the divine life through the ages. And at the end of the ages, God would be all in all. And that wouldn't be the end of everything. That would be the end of God's creative purposes in the ages, but the beginning of another grand story. Um, correct, co correct. And, and that's why, just as a brief, a brief insertion into our conversation to show why this, this particularly tra particular trajectory of conversation is so important. I think Ephesians, I mean, Tom Wright in his book, The Day the Revolution Began, makes, I think, a really good point. He muses that if Calvin and Luther had concentrated on Ephesians instead of Galatians, things would be very different. And they, they didn't. You know, I'm, I'm of a camp that thinks Ephesians is the high point. Now, Ephesians 1 is really, really significant, but most people just don't understand it because it's very pastoral. He's writing to a group of people who got converted. I hypothesize they had a short-term view of their conversion, much like we do. You know, I listened to a message, I believe this gospel, um, you know, life's changed, etc. Why does he begin in chapter 1? He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, the anointed, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ, in that he chose us in him before the foundation of creation. I mean, that is breathtaking. What he's saying to them is, guys, I want you to know what you're now involved in is not a reaction to your sin. It began before the creation of the cosmos. You're involved in a big plan. He takes them back before time and space began into the councils of the Godhead, exactly where Gregory of Nyssa goes in his meditation on the seventh day of creation. Now, I believe that is the trajectory of Christian growth. At the beginning, you talked about education. I think this is actually an educational thing. I think that this modern kind of narrowed Christianity is a bit like the Ephesians, <laughs> you know, very short-term, localised view, individualised view of what's happened. Hey, guys, I want you to stop and know we're part of a bigger plan here. I want you to get your head across it because it's pretty breathtaking. The issue there, too, is we're being told, or the way it was, uh, I guess I heard it when people first started talking about this, is that, yeah, God had a plan and uh, he, chose, he chose you all. And, well, the choosing means that he chose you all to be one of the ones that would be saved rather than the, some of the ones that would be damned in hell forever because it was in that it was in that um, it was in that model it and what i came to see is that if you look at it through the through the model of god's ultimate purposes that the purposes of election and being chosen is so that we could join 
in God's great grand purpose of the redemption of all of, of creation, of, of being a part of, of the good work that had begun in Christ that would ultimately result in the restoration of all things. That that's what we're chosen for, not to be the, the only recipients of some blessing, but to be the vehicle through which God works this blessing through to all. Yes, uh, and, and to take it even further, I mean, people again just need to read the text. I, I just quoted the uh, you know, Ephesians 1 verse 3 and 4. It doesn't say he chose us before the foundation of the world. It does not say that. It says he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. So now to be precise about it, God's choice was his son. That was his choice. And his son as the template of all creation. And this is where Trinitarian theology is very important and very much part of the creation because it might, only Trinitarian theology makes sense of a creation. You can't, you can't have creation if, you, if, you, if you've got a unit, a unit of God, right? So this makes the creation a, an extension of the Godhead from the beginning. God the Father as intent, Jesus as the image. So it's Jesus he chose, right, his son, and we are included in the son. So rather than this terrible shrunken uh, concept of choice as in I chose you and not you, it's better to, to talk about it as destiny. The, 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 the destiny and the big picture was all patterned, framed, in God's in plans for his son. And, and that's, so his son as the template for humanity is what was chosen, uh, which, which now gives you a very different picture from, uh, oh, God chose me to be a Christian and not someone else. And just by the way, to mention it briefly, poor old Jonathan Edwards was a conflicted soul, and I love what David Bentley Hart says about him. Um, you know, his religion was awful, but his metaphysics was magnificent. And his metaphysics on the Trinity are magnificent. And a lot of my thinking about this was opened up by his uh, great unpublished essay on the Trinity, which uh, does expand some of these points. Well, I think that what's happening right now is that as we start looking at, at, at a bigger picture of God's ultimate purposes in creation, it causes it's causing a lot of us to say certainly well, the view of eternal conscious torment doesn't work out because then all are not, uh, God does not end up all in all. But then what we realize too is once we think about it more, the annihilation solution doesn't work either. And that seems to be kind of the refuge where people flee from the eternal conscious torment doctrine into uh, the annihilation solution. And what they say is, well, the problem is, is that, you know, God gives everybody a choice and God wants everybody to be saved, but people make bad decisions and they make bad choices and God has to respect their freedom. And so part of God respecting their freedom is to allow them to devolve into some form of ex-human, into right puts it this way, to devolve in some kind of, to, to be ex-human in, in some way that even their parents wouldn't have sympathy for them anymore. But then we end up with the problem there in that that doesn't work out because it involves ideas of, of an incoherent kind of view of libertarian free will. And so I think what happens is people kind of run 
from eternal conscious torment and annihilationism, it seems like it's 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 a better solution. But the more you think about that, then annihilation doesn't work either because it doesn't ultimately fit in with the ultimate plans and purposes of God in creation, which is why I think that people are beginning to be more and more open to, if you want to call it apocatastasis or universal restoration or cosmic redemption, whatever you want to call it, that it is the only way that we can really proceed forward with a philosophically coherent, scripturally based form of Christianity that we can also find resonance with the early centuries of the church. So I think that a lot of people are getting more interested in this, and I think you're seeing that, and I'm seeing that too, and I was wondering if you could just talk about that some. Yeah, a lot in what you've just said. Firstly, annihilation is a lot better than eternal conscious torment, and that was probably my mid midway point. I think for a lot of people, it's it's a staging post, you know, because it seems heretical to embrace universal salvation from the word go. So that's that's one point. But it, it, it's, it's limited in that it's, it's probably timid in its vision. It's timid in its vision. What I've just talked about is that uh, the big word that, and, and remind me to talk about free choice in a moment. So okay. the, big word, the big word that I talk about is if I want to understand anything, how do I understand it? Let's just, get, let's just step right back. If I want to understand anything, how do I understand it? Um, and this was a. This has been very much part of my life because I deal with very big systems, legislative systems, big human social systems, governance. Very interesting um, front row seat I've had at not just innovation, but innovation of very large scale systems that impact lots of lives in both the public sector, the private sector, and not the profit sector. Now, the dominant mode of thought, which you talked about in your introduction, is called Cartesian reductionism, which has left us with the scientific method, which has left us with rationalism. Now, by the way, it's a, probably a bit of a side point, but another critique I'd make of the whole legalistic forensic construction of the gospel, it's actually quite reductionist and quite Cartesian. I won't go into it now, but the Reformation was in bed in a way with the Cartesian reductionism of, you know, objectified rational decision-making. And that was, a, that was a, a, not a good thing. But the great opponent of Descartes and his thinking, because Descartes really was the father of the Enlightenment, and he's a Christian, but still the father of the Enlightenment, that wanted to turn everything into a, you know, an analytical, mathematical decision-making process that would give him certainty. Descartes, hated ambiguity. He wanted certainty. He'd, he'd make a very good modern Protestant. Um, now, the problem was, in order to do that, he had to make things mechanical and he had to put human beings on the sideline because they were messy. So that was part of the limits he had. His great antagonist uh, was a man called Vico. Have you heard of Vico? I have not. Uh, Vico is a hero of mine and many others, Italian. About a, he, he began as a Cartesian, and he criticised Descartes in the end as Descartes' understanding of nature. He's, Vico is viewed as the, as the father of modern social anthropology. He said this. It's very profound. He said the only way to... You do not understand a system by its operations. You understand a system by its purpose only. And the only one he called a percaza. The only one who, that is, you understand a system by why, not how or who. Most systems become complex and bloated. I just spent life, my life, David, trying to improve them. People are inside 
the operations. They're all in the how. They're all in the complexity. And what we used to do in our strategic conversation, hang on, guys, why are you doing this in the first place? It's just totally cut through. You just lift to a big picture. And it, that's true of every system. And, and Vico said that's the only way to understand it, from why backwards. Now, he said, then he said a, a second devastating thing. The only person who understands the purpose of a system is the one who made it. His critique of Descartes is we didn't make creation, only God did, so we can never understand it. It's very elegant. But this has been, uh, this is domi- this way of thinking, which I've had for 20 years, I- I've proved its veracity and authenticity everywhere, but it's incredibly relevant to our conversation, which is to, uh, to, un- to get close to God, we've got to get into the why, not the how. My collaborator in Gospel Conversations, Ron, uh, who I-, I had the privilege 50 years ago almost of leading to Christ, is a Jew, brilliant man. He'd be embarrassed to hear me say it. But he was an existential, uh, atheistic fatalist from a brilliant Jewish family, I taught him. I knew he was suicidal because he thought life has no meaning, it's black, and he was converted. He then went, well, I won't go to the story, but I was mentoring him after that, and he asked me a question that I then had no answer for. He said, well, if I'm going to heaven and I'm saved, why don't I just kill myself and go there straight away? And I knew I couldn't answer him. I didn't have a big enough why. It was He was all caught up in the how. So what Paul is doing in Ephesians, he's taking the Christians back into why. Why are we here? Why were we saved? What's the goal? What's God want to do with us? And then you're led to not just, you're led back into creation. You're led into what we've just been talking about, but something more important about the chosen in Christ, which is we human beings are the catalyst of all the cosmos. You know, we make the cosmos in a way. We mediate the cosmos. We are the kind of circuit by which the life of God reaches the cosmos. Now, when you start, that's what Gregory of Nyssa was, you know, that's how he said when God told us to rule creation, that's where he was going. So therefore... It's not my individual salvation. Our job is to continue, because the other point about creation is that clearly in Genesis 1, we are not given a finished product. And my friend John Walton is brilliant on this, you know. Not that I'd want to, you know, rub John into calling me universalist, but he's brilliant on the fact that it's a beginning. He said, God gave us a house. He wants us to make it a home. It's, it's a work beginning. And so that work of fashioning the cosmos after the image of the sun is what we are called into being. And, and that, you know, very, very big picture is completely, which it isn't so much even in opposition to what you've just said. It's just like a wow factor. I mean, just let me give, finish with a really practical example, really practical example, because a lot of this might, might be abstract for people. I love teaching and I think people would say I was a teacher who made a big impact on people's lives. I taught at a very bright school. And uh, I used to teach the top literary class in grade 11, which is, you know, 16-year-olds. And these kids were used to getting 19 out of 20 by just putting pen to paper. They were lazy, arrogant little guys. Not, they, they were full of themselves. Mm-hmm. And so in, in the very first lesson I had with them, I always used to do the same thing. I'd give them an, a poem. I can remember, I think I gave them Robert Frost's poem, um, The Fear. It's, it's incomprehensible. I just gave them the poem. 
I said, uh, you've got 40 minutes. I want you to write something intelligent about this poem. And then I walked out. That, they didn't know what to do because they, well, they were used to control. And, and I said, I don't care what you do. You can do anything you like. I'm coming back in 40 minutes to collect it. So I'd collect it. Now, I knew they, they would write rubbish. I knew I could reliably range their marks between naught and five out of 20, which I did. I, I, some of these people now are quite senior people. They can quote, quote for you. <laughs> to this day, the comments on their essays. <laughs> um, and, uh, I, um, and I'd hand them back casually and they were just ashen-faced. Ashen-faced. It never happened in their lives before. I've got four out of 20. I've got naught out of 20. And I say, look, I only give naught out of 20 for the ones that were entertainingly bad. So it's a bit of a badge (laughs) of honour if you've got naught out of 20. And then I'd say to them this. I'd say, look, guys, I just want you to know something about me. I'm a really easy marker. I'm not one of these markers who's churlish and will never give an essay more than 16 out of 20. It's good I'll give you 20 out of 20. I said, in 18 months' time, you'll be regularly getting 20 out of 20. I know what that looks like. You don't, I do, but I'm going to get you there. They were putty in my hands and I got them there. Now, that's what a good teacher does. You show where they're at, but then you give them a vision. By the way, I never did this with students who were struggling because it would have destroyed their confidence. I just did it with the very bright kids. I want to give you a vision of where you're going to get to, and that's what we're working towards. Now, that's what we're talking about. That's what Vico meant about why everything is understandable if I've got some sense of why and the purpose, which is really uh, what I'm critiquing, you know, in the general conception of the gospel. It's, it's, it's actually in a Cartesian world of how and how it all works. And it begs this big question of, well, why is it there in the first place? Well, now, uh, some people would be really happy with the idea that there's this big picture that God has but they would, they would offer this question. Well, what about people who don't want to be a part of it? Doesn't God give them the freedom, free will? How can this be such a wonderful thing if people uh, don't even have a choice about whether or not to be a part of it? And so how does free will work into this? It's a really important question because it's the most common defense of people who want to keep believing in hell. You know, and, and, and there's this idea of right because hell is the ultimate hell is the ultimately God giving people what they want in, in a certain way of thinking. Yeah. Now, David Bentley Hart, I think, has adequately, not adequately, brilliantly responded to that. I've got a slightly different take, which is always, this has always struck me as very, very naive about decision making, as you read in your uh, read out in your introduction to, about me. I've spent my life looking at decision making. Now, um, I mentioned earlier that uh, I had a, a visiting appointment at Carnegie Mellon, which, as you know, is a very prestigious university in America, and, and um, uh, that was in 1995 uh, when I was the chair, Nuremberg Chair of Design there. And the uh, back then, uh, one of the icons of Carnegie Mellon was a man called Herbert Simon, who who was then in cognitive science and artificial intelligence, but he'd won the Nobel Prize for economics. Now, he won the Nobel Prize for economics because he trashed the idea of rational decision-making, which is at the heart of modern economics. And this idea, well, everyone's got a choice, you know, people can reject, that just struck me as this just sounds like Adam Smith and market economics. 
where we get the at the heart of it is the myth is is the idea of the rational decision maker. Give give the consumer adequate information and they'll make a choice. And it's 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 really turning the gospel into some kind of market economics with rational decision making at the core. And there are these people who rationally get all the information and they say no to it. Now Simon won the Nobel Prize because through cognitive science he he destroyed the concept of rationality. He he had it. I won't go into the details. He introduced what's called bounded rationality. Made a simple point that we've got we're very limited in what we can cram into our minds, and not everyone's got all the information. So the, the central tenet of your decision making model in economics doesn't work. It doesn't work. Now I'd say exactly the same thing. Okay, so I don't know. In my life, I had the privilege of influencing directly and indirectly, probably hundreds of people to become Christians. So I am an evangelist. I'm not like someone who doesn't do it. Now, I talk to people freely about my faith all the time. This construct of someone who has a very clear understanding of the gospel and rejects it, I'm yet, to be honest with you, to meet that person. I know I more know people who don't fully understand the gospel, um, had very bad church experiences that turned them off it, you know, their mind's clouded for a lot of reasons that I totally get. And they're going to get judged for that, let alone all the people who've never heard the gospel. I mean, the, 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 the myth of rational decision-making, which is at the core of this from a point of view of cognitive science, doesn't work any more better for the gospel than it did for market economics. And that just is just, to me, a very obvious point, let alone the fact that if you then want to get into the theology, you're turning faith into a work. And there's no way out of that one. And you've been down that track with people before. But just this concept of the myth of the rational decision-making process that's at the heart of all these people who are rejecting Christ and rejecting God. To go in from that into the Bible, David, a lot of the verses they'll get will be on at the moment. Uh, my wife and I are reading Ezekiel, you know, and there's a lot of judgment passages in Ezekiel, you know. Judgment passages in Jeremiah, you and I both know if you read them in context, evangelicals read that as all the people who are saying no to Christ and the unredeemed. It's not. It was the rulers of Israel who were terrible people. It's very specific. It's nothing to do with people saying no to the gospel. When I started thinking about people making bad decisions because they have lack of understanding, I thought again the interesting thing that Jesus said from the cross about the people who were crucifying him, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. They're acting out of ignorance. And I guess what I heard Jesus or I hear Jesus saying is that he's in the begin, he's in the business of forgiving people who are acting out of ignorance. Well, if you take somebody that's not acting out of ignorance, that's, fully informed about the goodness of God and the glory of God's purposes in creation, then yes, a fully informed decision that somebody would make with all of the relevant information would be to go into the direction of the fulfillment of their creation and God's purposes in creation and and to enjoy all of that. And so it wouldn't be a violation. It wouldn't be a violation of anything. It would be just them acting out of full information and understanding. Correct. And just let me just give you a story to illustrate the complexity of what we're talking about. And, and if you can remind me, I would like to say something positive about decision making. But I'll just tell you a story of make it anonymous, someone close to my heart, who rejected Christianity 
and became apostate. There are more and more of these people around and you would know that, David, and hell is doing a really good job with them. And so this person was an evangelical Christian and converted, quote unquote, in the teens. And uh, I knew a lot, had a lot to do with her, um, very intelligent. And I won't go into all the details, but let's say mid-30s, gave it all up, turned back. Having had what, from what you just said, you know, a clear grasp of and presentation of the gospel all that time. The story's not yet finished, but that's where it is. Interesting. So this looks like someone to be blamed, you know, according to the construct you've put forward. I won't go into all the details, but here's one of the details that caused this person great bitterness the older they got. This story is not unique, which is this person lost a mother uh, to cancer at a very young age. Uh, and um, soon after the mother's death, the evangelical youth leaders, I'm talking about a week after the death, evangelical youth leaders in the church said, if you want to see your mother again, you must accept Jesus as your saviour and you'll see her again in heaven. Or if not, you'll go to hell. She, that is nothing, that is, you know, abuse. And she came to resent that manipulation enormously the older she got. That was one of the ingredients. So, you know, this is where the waters are very muddy, you know, as to where, why people do things. Um, well, yeah, I would say that's not a clear presentation of things. So she's no, rejecting something. She's rejecting something that should rightly be rejected. Correct. And then she does what a lot of people do, which I've seen them do, is they throw the baby out with the bathwater because they've, they've been given this brittle picture of what they think is God and they don't believe in that anymore, so they throw it away. And um, I just come across more and more stories, not exactly like that, they're, all, they're, they're sort of different, different ways, but uh, where I'm thinking, wow. That, but what happened is the same thing. They threw the baby out with the bathwater because they got an overly simplistic, brittle, hell-based picture of God. Well, yeah, people become they become evangelical in their rejection of evangelicalism. In other words, they, they reject evangelicalism, but they still hold on to the view that evangelicalism is the only true form of Christianity. So they have now rejected all of Christianity. Correct. And they, they do that out of, out of ignorance, which is really sad. And um, let's not get onto evangelicalism at the moment. <laughs> it's just, it's really... <laughs> well, it's the, the, the reason is... The reason this, this bothers me is that we have an epidemic of hopelessness and addiction, and people desperately need this, this bigger story to give their lives hope and meaning and purpose. So it bothers me that these, I would think, in, these inferior presentations of the gospel have clouded things so much that when, when people, like, so when, what Lee Strobel is basically doing in his book is saying, Oh well, this uh, this universal vision of Christianity—it's that's dangerous and deviant. It's he's he's pushing people away from the very person he's trying to bring them. He's trying to bring them to by the way he's framing the whole thing, and I just find that frustrating. Yes, so do I, and it's—I think it's worse than he knows it is. That that problem. Can I just finish? There is one thing I did want to say about decision making which does go yeah. to the, let's call it the positive side of decision-making, which is what's going on in life and in the world today and, and what's the trajectory of growth 
because if we go back to that original story of creation and made in the image of God and comprehending God and then humanity being the mediator of God to the cosmos, but intrinsic in the very concept of creation is otherness. It's very, very risky to create an other. Okay, we know that as mortal human beings, but for the infinite to create the finite. I cannot control the finite, otherwise it would not be other, if you get what I mean. The minute I create something, it has to be other than me, and that otherness is not to be conceived primarily in terms of its materiality, but its agency. It has to have agency. This is the big risk of creation. And now that agency to be real has to make decisions, has to learn, has to grow, has to be able to contemplate going either way. So I view the concept of the will being, what I say is that God's ultimate plan of governing the cosmos is he is not going to govern it directly, but indirectly. He's governing it through his son and the Trinitarian agents so that we need to be Trinitarian agents. We need to be persuaded and aligned with the purposes and agency of the Trinity. So that's why persuasion is at the heart of the gospel. That project is God's project. And I think that makes sense to me of sanctification and growth, but it also makes sense of the picture of this ongoing persuasion and ongoing alignment of my values with God's values, which is what decision-making is about, such that I can act as if I were God. You know, in the wonderful words of John in his epistle, as Jesus is, so are we in the world. That's his goal, and his goal is relentless, and everybody will be folded into that. So the idea of the ages of the ages, where this continues post-mortem, it means all will be included in it. But this is to view decision-making not as um, a one-off, uh, like, you know, door that we enter or don't enter, and then that's the end of it. It's an ongoing conversion of the mind to God that's intrinsic, uh, that's intrinsic right back in the very beginning of all things. Well, there's a, uh, that's what I like about David Bentley Hart's analysis of this is he exposes the ultimate incoherence of the libertarian free will view, which we could just as easily choose one thing as another. And what he wants to say is, no, we we have got, uh, he talks about the intellectual, intellectualist model. In other words, we have an orientation. There is a certain givenness to creation and we are given agency, but through that agency, we discover who we are and the direction that is inherent in our creation and where and where it's going. So we do have we do have agency. We can discover we're given terrifying agency to discover mm-hmm. lots of horrible things, things that are so horrible. It's hard for me to imagine that God allows these things. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea is this this incredible agency that we are given is all in the in the service of the larger process of God's ultimate purposes in creation. Correct, which is to have creation participate 
in the Godhead and its uh, and the Godhead's purposes. Well, Tony, I really appreciate your time and uh, I always look forward to new episodes on the Gospel Conversations podcast and the interesting things that you are that you're saying. And it's it's fun to be a part of this, um, I guess, growing awareness that's happening and this this conversation is growing. There are a lot more people that are participating in it and I appreciate your work in helping people to to find out a bigger, broader way uh, to think about a truly good gospel. So thank you very much for your work. Thank you, David. Thank you. I always enjoy talking to you. All right. Talk to you later. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.